Amen. All right, let's go. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, I'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles uh, in the racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. Uh, we believe that God has given us the Bible for all kinds of good reasons, but over and above all those other reasons is the fact that he's given it to, to us so that we may know him. It's where he reveals himself and his character to us. And we want you to know God, and that's the best place to find him. And so it would be a terrible idea for you to let, let you walk out the door without a Bible today if you don't have one. And so uh, if you don't have one, take that one. If you do have one, don't take our Bibles. That's kind of a jerk move. But it's, you can have one if you don't have one. Um, you don't need a second one. Take that. You get it. All right. So Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're calling a timeout. Uh, in our series that we've been working on, our sermon series that we've been working on uh, for this year, and we'll be working on for the rest of the year, uh, but we're taking a time out for five weeks uh, to look at something else for a few weeks in a row. Uh, what, first of all, because uh, it's good to you know give it a rest every once in a while. Uh, I mean, always leave them one more, right? That's how that's how things work best. Every good manager knows that, all right. Uh, and so leave them wanting more. So we're going to take a little bit of break, and it will feel fresh to us when we come back in September. Uh, I don't want to like completely bore you to death with our series for, you know, nine months on end, so we'll take a short break. Uh, but also because there's something that's been on my heart for a number of years now that, that I've always wanted to devote a, a fair amount of, like, Bible teaching to. Like, I, I want to stand in front of people and, and walk through uh, some concepts that, that I, I think are near and dear to, to who we are called to be as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and it just so happens that, well, I get to make those decisions around here, so guess what we're going to do? <laughs> Right? Yeah, and so, now I've been wanting to kind of focus on some stuff for a long time, and that, and that stuff is this. Social media. Specifically, how the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to things like social media. Now, you may be wondering, um, is something as trivial as social media worthy of our time? Um, I think it absolutely is. I think it absolutely is. Um, devoting our attention to it on a Sunday morning, let alone five Sunday mornings. I mean, it hasn't really been around all that long, right? It, in the grand scheme of human history, it's only a speck on the horizon, right? But here's the deal. The gospel certainly applies to everything else in life, but I believe it also applies very deeply uh, to the way we use social media. And so I want to kick off a series called Hashtag Gospel. There's the artwork. Garrett did a great job. All right. Hashtag gospel. I want to spend five weeks looking at five realities of what Jesus talked about, uh, what Jesus changes in us. And so, uh, and so if you're on the fence over whether or not uh, something like social media ought to be given our attention, let me, we can fix that real quick with an informal little survey. Show of hands. How many of y'all have a social media account of any variety at all? Any variety at all. I'll list off a few. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Google+, LinkedIn, YouTube account, Pinterest, Reddit, Friendster. Right? If you have a Friendster account, you're showing your age. How many of y'all have an Instagram or a social media account of any variety? All right. How many of y'all have an account on three or more of those platforms? How many of you have an account on five or more of those platforms? I've got my hand. Yeah, Garrett probably has ten. All right. All right, now. How many of y'all have no account of any variety at all? Okay, so it's about even with those who have no accounts and those who have five plus. All right, but here's where I can really drive the point home. How many of you that have accounts on multiple platforms have had seasons in your life where you 
thought honestly about getting rid of one. Because either A, you just got tired of it, or you didn't want to deal with the drama, or it wasn't all what you promised it was, be, it was, promised it was going to be. How many of y'all would say that? Okay, so let the record state for anybody who may be listening on the audio. There are more people who raised their hands about feeling overtaxed on social media than those who don't have it at all. That's the world that we live in. So regardless of however long it's been around, however long in the scope of human history it's been existent, it may not even be here 10 years from now, but today it is one of the most ubiquitous pieces of our culture, right? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, and, and whether, no matter what your political leanings are, and we all got some, right? right? But no matter what your leanings are, we can't argue with the fact that, that things like Facebook and Twitter have directly affected major issues in our culture like elections and policymaking and just public opinion on most of everything, right? It's dramatically affected. And so maybe it might be a good idea for God's people every once in a while to focus some attention on how the gospel that shapes them, changes them, defines them, affects everything else in their life, especially the most ubiquitous parts of that life, right? And so I want to spend five weeks looking at five realities of the gospel that, yes and amen, affect everything else in your world, but I want to give it the specific focus of how it affects social media over this month plus. Does that sound like a plan? I think it's a good plan. All right. And it just so happens that I've got a little gimmick to go along with it, right? Because I'm a gimmicky kind of guy, right? That was, okay, never mind. All right, I'm not a gimmicky guy. I'm forcing it. But here, we're going to try it. I want to give you each week one big idea and one frank statement. I want to bring it, tie it all in a little bow and give you one big idea and one frank statement. And so to kick us off this morning with the first one, let's look at a passage of Scripture that probably most everybody in this room is pretty familiar with. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, And God blessed man and said, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Okay, so right out of the gate, you get to the creation account of everything in existence. God creates everything, and that everything includes the creation of man and woman. 
But in verse 26, we're told something special about the creation of man and woman. It's different than everything we've seen so far in the story, if you've read it. Um, there's a distinction between the way God creates everything else and what happens with the creation of man. We're told uh, that the creation of everything else comes about by the, the mere power and authority of God's word alone. Let there be light and light be. Right? That's how the, the Hebrew renders that. Right? And so everything is Spoken into existence by the divine will of the sovereign creator king. But then in verse 26, we see this weird conversation going on. Did you catch it? Let us make man in our image. Who's the us? And so you see this divine conversation, this vocal decision amongst the rest of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and they decide to make man in their own image, plural, their own image. This isn't just, I want there to be light, so light be. They come to a conclusion here, and they form man. There's purposeful design here that seems to take another step above what's already been taking place. It doesn't mean that God hasn't been purposeful and intentful uh, in everything else, but there seems to be an extra layer of it here. There seems to be an extra layer of intentionality buried all the way to the core of this that goes deeper than what we saw with everything else. And the story keeps going, and in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 2, we see this, the focus zoom in on just the creation of man. It kind of glosses over the creation of everything else. It hits the repeat button, but this time, instead of focusing on everything, it focuses on the creation of man. And in there, we're told that, that Adam is formed out of the dust of the ground and that the breath of life is breathed into his nostrils. Well, that's a cool little story, right? That's not the only thing we're told about man. We're also told that he is given dominion, lordship, over the rest of what? Creation. They are to rule over the rest of creation as vice regents of this great creator king. He gives them dominion. Man shares a special relationship with the creator, with God, that the rest of creation doesn't have access to and we're never created to experience. Man is set apart for this special purpose, but if you know your Bible well, you know that that doesn't last very long. So turn with me real quick to chapter 3. Man is given this image of God, buried deep within his core, and he is set, off, set apart to rule over, lord over the rest of creation, have dominion over it. But in chapter 3, we see the problem, because by this point in the story, we're going to pick it up in verse 17 in a second, but by this point in the story, Adam and Eve have uh, been placed in a garden, and they've been given the command to be fruitful and multiply, but they've also been given the command to abstain from eating one specific fruit, right? One no and an entire creation of yeses. God, everything up to this point has been be fruitful and multiply, enjoy, have fun, go build, go enjoy, go experience, expand yourselves. And God gives them one no in an entire universe of yeses. And then it's not long until an unwanted character shows up in the story, right? The serpent comes in, he twists God's words. And the scene plays out where he convinces Adam and Eve that God is withholding joy from them 
because of this one solitary no. He convinces them that if, that, that if they're going to experience the fullness of joy, the fullness of what they ought to be, they need to reject God's authority, reject God's wisdom, and go get it themselves. So they eat the fruit. And they sin against God. God shows up on the scene, knowledgeable of everything that's gone on up to this point. He's not in the dark about this, but he asks a series of questions. He flushes out what exactly happened, gets Adam to admit his own guilt, and then God begins to hand down the punishments. He starts with the serpent, right? And then he hands down the punishment to the woman, and then finally he hands down the punishment to Adam. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, we read this. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. For by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So man is created in the image of God. But two and a half chapters into the story we see that, that image marred. We see that image fractured. It's, it's beat up, it's bloodied, and it's clouded. It doesn't mean it goes away entirely. But it's veiled. And it's fractured. God, the relationship between God and man is broken in this moment. Our image is obstructed and now bent towards sin. And a holy God... A holy and righteous God and in relationship with a very unrighteous man now has, has some animosity there, right? There's a problem. So the relationship is broken. We are sinful and corrupted and the end of Genesis chapter 3 ends with God casting Adam and Eve out of the garden, right? And I think far more tragically, out of his presence, Three chapters into the Bible, everything that was rhythmic and harmonious in creation now carries the feeling of disjointedness and dissonance. The relationship that was intended to be flawless and, and, and operate in perfection and where I know God and God knows me has now been completely torn apart. And that doesn't mean that everything, that nothing is ever beautiful anymore. It doesn't mean that, but... If you pay attention, I think you're going to find it really, really difficult to find something in this world that isn't stained by sin in some way or another. Even when you do find something that you can call beautiful, something you can call good, it never, ever, ever lasts nearly as long as we all desperately wish it would. Right? It's always got a shelf life. It always falls apart, most notably in the reality that, well... When you do find something beautiful, it ends up being taken or being broken or just running out of gas. Way too soon. Way too soon. And we slough it off with comments like, oh, nothing lasts forever. But that's not what we were promised. That's not the way Genesis 1 and 2 read. It's not what we were created for. But God's not done with his story. Luckily, there's a whole lot of chapters after Genesis chapter 3. 
God's not done with his story. He's not exactly the type to give up and just cut his losses. And so the rest of the story plays out that he has promised a fix for everything that went wrong. We didn't read it, but in verse 15 of chapter 3, even as he's handing out the punishments for the sin, he's promising a fix for the promise to come. And what does that fix look like? A promised son who will one day forever crush the serpent's head, for those of you who know the story. And if you've been following with our Story of God series all, all this year, you know that the rest of the Old Testament is nothing more than God putting the pieces in place for Jesus to step onto the scene and be the fix for all that problem, right? That's what he's working to. And so we can't possibly summarize the whole story this morning. We can't tell it all. But I think we can summarize it best out of another place in the Bible. So join me in Galatians chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 4. Be towards the back. We can't tell the entire story of what God is doing beginning to end, but man, I can give you a haymaker of a sentence that'll summarize it as best as possible. Get there myself. It takes longer if you turn one page at a time. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians is one of the first things that was written in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, it, we think this is his first letter probably, uh, he wrote this letter to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, uh, Galatia and uh, the reason for the letter is that they were in the weeds, man, uh, theologically. They were making a mess of things, and they misunderstood the gospel in some massive, massive ways. And so Paul writes this letter to them to clarify things, and things desperately needed to be clarified for them. All right? And so in Galatians chapter 4, Verse 4, we read these words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. Anybody want to count commas in there? It's one giant run-on sentence. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that is one giant sentence and all of our English majors are probably hating it. But, that is the most, that is the most amazing summary of the gospel packed into one sentence that you will ever come across in this world. It's the gospel in one sentence. And while there are a lot of little clauses in there, let's flesh them out for a second, because, well, it'll help us understand the story well. Paul starts by saying, but when the fullness of time had come, so at the very moment God intended it, not a second before, not a second after, at the very moment God intended it, God's plan from before the foundation of the world was unleashed. When the fullness of time had come. So at the precise moment in human history that would be most effectual for his plan and bring him the most glory in the process, God the Father rolled out his eternal plan. He says, when, when the fullness of time had come, comma, God sent forth his what? the eternally begotten but with no beginning, member of the Trinity. God himself steps onto the scene of human history in the person and work of Jesus. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. What else does it say? Born of woman. So this eternal God has somehow added humanity to himself without changing his godness. 100% fully God, 100% fully man. If you're asking how that works, I don't know either. I don't know. But I can take comfort in the fact that God is bigger and smarter than I am. And I can trust the fact that it probably makes sense to him. 
And then Paul says that Jesus was born under the law. Jesus carried obedience to God's law on his shoulders from day one, and he remained flawlessly faithful to God's law all the way to the end. Born under the law. To redeem those who are under the law. So even though we are separated from God and deserve wrath for our sin, even though we are incapable of living under the law, Jesus did. He redeems those. Jesus pays the debt that we owe through his death on the cross. That's what redeem means, to buy back, right? And so he pays the debt that we owe through his death on the cross, and we are purchased for God, redeemed and reconciled back to him. Not exactly a light thing, right? But then Paul introduces the final clause of this haymaker called a sentence by using the phrase, so that. And those of you who have been around for a while are maybe getting tired of me explaining this. Good. The phrase, so that, is a hinge in this sentence. It sets up a condition, right? Which means everything coming before the phrase, so that, is a means to the greater end of whatever's coming after the phrase, so that. So, the Apostle Paul just ran through clause after clause after clause of who Jesus is and what he came to do, and he sets it up with this little phrase. He turns the switch and says, so that. So what's coming next? So that what? We might receive what? Adoption as sons. Okay, so let me walk us through a a reality in the Bible that too many people misunderstand about the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are not simply saved from wrath and into neutrality. That's not what's going on here. As if God's anger just needed to be be assuaged in some way and then everything will be all right again. That God's anger can be bought off and we'll all just go back to being our own happy little selves, minding our own business. That's not what we were created for. We weren't created with statuslessness. We were created to be image bearers and vice regents of the king. And so when the Bible speaks of adoption into God's family, it's not some cute little way of explaining the gospel in one little part of the Bible to help it make sense. It is a major component of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not meant to make us feel better about ourselves. It's a reality change. It's a position change. It's about fixing and reinstituting what went horrifically wrong in the garden. And if you're the type that needs me to flesh out that idea, let me show you my work real quick. Let me rattle off a few verses for you. Just before this verse uh, in, in chapter 4, back up in chapter 3, Paul says that if we belong to Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In Ephesians 1, a text that I love dearly, we're told that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In 1 John 3, a text we look at Vacation Bible School this week, we learn that see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. In John 1, his gospel, we see that he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. In Romans 8, a text that we could have just as easily looked at instead of Galatians chapter 4, in verse 12, we read this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I'll repeat what I said a while ago. Adoption is not just a passing analogy in the Bible to help us understand the gospel better. Adoption into God's family is a major component of the gospel itself. 
We are co-heirs with Christ. And if we are not co-heirs with, with Christ, we are in trouble because we have no right to claim what he inherited for us. It's a major component of the Bible. So I told you earlier that I was going to try to tie all this up in a pretty little bow with this thing called the big statement. So here it is. What's the big idea this week? If the eternal and infinitely lovely creator king of the cosmos created you to be an image bearer of himself, and if he created you to live and walk as vice regent, ruler, to have dominion over the rest of creation, and if he, even after you have sinned against him time and time again in the most heinous of ways, if he chose to reconcile you back to himself and adopt you as his own by sending Jesus to die on the cross, then there is no one, and I literally mean no one on the planet that you have to impress. Not a soul. When God declares your status, it's over. No more conversation left. And if he calls you son or daughter, who else do you need? Who else do you need? This is true of every single corner of our life, but it is especially true when it comes to things like social media. Especially true because every one of those platforms that we rattled off earlier, every one of them is built out and designed in such a way that leaves me wanting to make sure you see all my good parts and never want to see any of the bad ones. Never want to see any of the bad ones. But I'm sure I'm all alone in thinking that, right? So we play these games with ourselves, with our own hearts and with each other that bend over backwards to try to create the idyllic picture of ourselves that we, we so desperately want other people to see. And I'm willing to bet that some of you who raised your hand about 20 minutes ago about feeling overtaxed on social media sometimes know exactly how exhausting that feels. Right? But one of the major realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus gives you a new identity. Or, or, or maybe better said, he restores you to the identity that was yours all along. That you were created to walk in. It's an identity that is hardwired to find its shape and its completeness and its satisfaction in him and him alone. And so I also promised you a frank statement this morning, and so here's that one. Stop placing yourself under the scrutiny of people whose opinions don't actually matter. At least not on an eternal scale. Don't mishear me. I, you may well gain something in this world by using social media that way. About trying to chase after identity and status. In fact, I can almost promise you that you will gain something because our world is pretty darn good at creating systems and reward structures around things that are temporary and hollow been doing it long before we were around it'll be doing it long after we're gone it's kind of an expert at it but it's also fleeting it cannot last it doesn't have the legs for it, it can't even deliver on everything it's promised today let alone forever and when you take into account what you have to trade in in order to get it well, if the Bible's true, I don't get the impression that it's worth it. I just don't. In fact, the closer you look at it, the more it reveals itself to be a pretty sad trade-off. 
To continue to chase after and bend over backwards for attention and the admiration of a friends list is a pretty sad way to live life all by itself. But when you have to chase after that, when, God had, when the God of the universe has already declared you to be his son or his daughter, co-heir with Christ, if he's already gone to the lengths of the cross to rescue you and call you his own, it's slightly short-sighted. Actually, short-sighted isn't good enough. It completely ignores who you are in Jesus. You lose sight of the massive thing that you have already been declared. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to God's word this morning? And maybe more importantly, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ apply to those like myself who at times have absolutely failed in this? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God this morning. You do that by repenting of sin and leaning into who he's already called you to be, joyfully called you to be. You don't have to earn status with him. You can't. That's what the cross was for. You lean into his work on the cross on your behalf. and you, you, It's when we lose sight of who he is and what he's done that we fall into these ruts of thinking we've got to earn status and earn identity from other places. So the best advice I can give you is to repent of that sin and put your eyes on Jesus instead of yourself. Press in. We put some questions in your bulletins this week. Uh, questions that you can, you can ask. We're going to do this each week of this series. Um, you can do that any way you want. It, they're there to serve you. Do them by yourself if you want to. Listen, though, take the extra step and do them with your family or your small group, especially the people who know your social media habits. There's an extra kind of special in there. Press in this week. Press in. Do yourself a favor, though, and take the next step of fleshing out some functional things in how you approach things like social media. Where do you find your identity? Where do you, what do you chase after in this world? What do you desperately hope people know and notice about you? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you. If that'll serve you well this morning. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. I'm glad you're here. I love that you're willing to press in and keep asking questions and at the very least, check us out. My encouragement to you would be keep pressing in. We have no official church position on social media. I don't think God does either. I don't think he cares. But like everything else in this world that he's given us, I think he wants us to consistently use it with who he's called us to be. But for those of you who don't know Jesus yet, what exactly is he calling you? If you don't know Jesus yet, what is he calling you? Because the Bible paints the picture that you're an enemy of God until you know Jesus. So here is what you need today, not better social media habits. You need to know that Jesus loves you and he created you for far more value than what you find in yourself. And what you think you find in others. He joyfully went to the cross to purchase you for himself to pay the debt of your sin, and he is absolutely in the identity-changing business because when he calls you his own, that's the end of it. You're his, regardless of what your background was. He changes people. And so, listen, if you're ready to make that next step of repenting of sin and trusting Jesus and his work for you this morning, I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing. You come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for things like social media. Don't know what to do with it most of the time. And 
like all kinds of other things in this world, I misuse it and use it to serve myself. You've called me to a higher standard. You've called me to a, a more eternal reality. God, you are in the identity-changing business. And there is nothing in this world that I need after you declare me your own. Would you remove my death grip from, from the things that try to exalt myself? And make a name for myself? Or I can be honest this morning, even the things that I chase after that always come up empty, but I still chase anyways. You've created me to know you. To love you and be loved by you. Friends can come and go. I'd rather have you. God, give us eyes to see where we chase after things that can't satisfy. Give us eyes to see where we chase after things that distract us from you. Help us walk well to the day you call us home. If anybody here who doesn't know you this morning, would you make yourself known to them? Reveal yourself to them. Call out their sin. Draw them to repentance and bring them home. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.